Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I don't know about today's message. I don't know how many of you were praying yesterday, but let me tell you what happens. Normally, I don't share this. I prepared one sermon. You know, we're preaching through a series on the book of Romans, so I know where I'm going, but I don't really know exactly. I try to map out before which passage I'm going to deal with, but then I get to it and something happens. Well, I prepared one sermon on Wednesday, and I thought, yeah, it's okay. Thursday, I looked at it, and I thought, yeah, I don't really like that one. So tried another one on Friday, and I thought, well, that's a little bit better, but I'm not sure. I think Wednesday's was better. So then I threw them both away, and I got up yesterday, and I said, Lord, I, I mean, this is just not usually how this happens, so I need something. And so yesterday, about, oh, around lunchtime, whoever was praying, you know, maybe some of y'all were praying, oh, Lord, help him be short clear and to the point, or whatever it was, it finally hit me, and by the way, this is what happens, usually when you take a bath in a passage, you come out smelling like the passage, because I probably read it 50 times, maybe 80, I'm not sure, but keep reading it over and over again, and finally I realize, you know, what Paul is doing is he's trying to convey to these people truths about his heart to them, which was really God's heart to them. And so as I began to soak all this up, I came up with this message, basically, which is God's heart for his church. And he's speaking to you through Paul. You know, sometimes pastors want to tell their church some truths about them. For example, I found one man uh, that wrote some words, and these are his words, not mine, but they are true, he wanted to tell his church that preaching is not all a pastor does. The second thing was is it takes a lot of money to run a church. Getting and keeping volunteers is much harder than you imagine. There is no perfect church and certainly no perfect pastor. He also said that it's very hard to forge friendships within his own church. And then finally he said that he appreciated his people much more than they would ever imagine. Now those are very good truths, and I think I would agree with probably every one of them, maybe tweak one or two. But when I started looking at Romans chapter 15, I found seven truths that God pointedly told this church that he wanted them to know about themselves and about him. Seven of those truths. So as I was thinking through this, one of the most astounding points was this. Now I want you to think about this. It is quite staggering to think that God's plan for growth and expansion of His church would come through frail human messengers. Now, if I were God, I would choose it any other way because all of us have brokenness in our life. I mean, when I go talk to you and you peel back the layers of my life, you're going to find uh, that I have crazy family. I'm half crazy myself. And, you know, and you're going to find all kinds of things about me, and you're going to go, my goodness, how could God ever use somebody like that? And then when I talk to you, I'm going to find out you have crazy family. Or you may be crazy. And you're broken. And yet God chooses to use broken vessels who he asks from, from our life and our mouth and our words to share what God has done in our life through Jesus Christ with other people. 
And God takes that brokenness in our life and the greatness of his message and he transforms someone's life through us. And then we step back and say, Lord, are you sure you did that? Really? I mean, and then you say, yes, God uses me and he uses my story, which is his grand story in my life, in the life of someone else. And this is exactly what Paul was doing here as he shares seven truths that every church leader wants his people to know. Now, every sermon, by the way, should be pointed. It should be punctual, which means we should beat the Methodist out. And it should be transformative. So if you're going to be an effective preacher, by the way, they teach you this in preaching classes, you need to make one major point and then you need to drive that major point home with some subpoints because the average human mind can only, can only sink in one truth for a period of time. I'm going to violate all that this morning. <laughs> and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you seven of these truths and pray that you grab a hold of one of them and say, you know what, I'm going to take this one with me through the week because I think this one is speaking to my heart, and this is what God wants to do in me. So on the back of your bulletin there that you normally throw away, or on the offering envelope that you may or may not use, write down one of these major seven points that you think would be most helpful for you, and start praying about that this week, and saying, Lord, I want you to use this in my life and help this be true, okay? Point number one is, is that God wants us that's you and me, to be in unity with Him and with one another. Okay? He wants the relationship to be right between me and Him and me and others around me, especially my Christian brothers and sisters. That's what we've been talking about for three weeks, how God brings unity out of diversity. Now, Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, which is where we're at today, these words, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, as you know, Paul's been talking about strong and weak Christians. We've talked about this. You're tired of hearing about it. But the bottom line is, we do have that in our midst. Some with very sensitive conscience, some with conscience that allows them to do things that are in some ways not wrong to them. God doesn't say yes or no to it. They have freedom. You have all kinds of diversity. God says you are to welcome each other because God has welcomed both the weak and the strong. So he wants us to be in unity with him and he wants us to be in unity with one another. Now, I think I've made that point clear over the last two weeks. If you want more, go back and watch the last two messages. I'm on to the second truth. The second truth is, and get a hold of this, because if you want to, to kill and squash all of this ridiculousness today about diversity and divisiveness and all this racial tension and ethnic tension and all the rest of this craziness, all you have to do is go straight to the gospel and God kills all that. And here's why. Because he shows no favoritism 
when it comes to the saving of someone's soul. Zero. God does not elect rich or poor, black or white, yellow or green. God is the God of all peoples. Now, notice this passage, and I want you to notice it very carefully. Because if you miss this, what Paul does is he's beginning to explain to the Jewish believers there that salvation was not just for them. As a matter of fact, he pulls from the three places in the Hebrew Old Testament, the law, the writings, and the prophets. Our, our Bible is broken up a little different, but the Hebrews had it in the law, the prophets, and the writings. And Paul pulls a, a verse from each of those sections to show that God's plan was to bring the Gentiles into his saving program. Fascinating. Listen to what he writes. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised Jews to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. If you've been coming on Sunday nights, you know exactly what that means, and I don't have to explain it. Now, notice what he says. And, and, and not just to show the Jewish people that he's faithful to his word, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Truthfulness to the Jews and to bring the Gentiles in to glorify God through the same program. Now notice what he writes. Therefore, he's quoting here, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, in case anybody wants to think that God didn't have a plan for Gentiles, and again... The root of Jesse, Jesus, will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Now by the way, if you're here this morning and you are not one of the twelve tribes of Israel, your heart should be rejoicing right now. Because you, as a Gentile, had no hope, no promise, and no connection to God apart from the Jewish nation. But when Jesus came, Paul said, He revealed the true heart of God all along, which was all the way back in the Old Testament, that God was going to be a God of the Gentiles too. Now, notice what Paul says as he finishes this to the Gentiles and the Jews. May the God of hope fill you, Gentiles, with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Now, every Jew would always boast about the hope they had in God. And what he is saying to the Gentile here is, God gives you the same hope in the person of Christ as he ever gave them. Now, folks, I don't know if you know what it's like to not be in the royal line my wife and I like to watch, I don't know how I got hooked on this, but we like to watch these, these uh, Victorian era shows. They're very fascinating because everything goes through the bloodline. If you are not part of that bloodline, I'm sorry, you are out. 
It doesn't matter who you, come, who you are, where you come from. If you are out of that bloodline, you are not in royalty. And by the way, uh, this is so applicable down to the, to the Bible truth. If you weren't hooked or connected with this Jewish nation, you were out. You had no chance of royalty. You had no chance of being in this kingly family. Uh, we were watching one show, and this, there was a big squabble over these people who were not in the bloodline. They were scratching and clawing about who was going to get this. When it came down to it, it didn't matter. They weren't connected. They had no hope. What God is saying through the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles is, through Christ Jesus, even though you were not originally connected to the royal bloodline, now you are. Now you are. And you have as much right as any. Notice what he writes in the prison epistle to the Ephesians. Listen carefully to his, as he writes to these Gentiles. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called by the Jews the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Now by the way, that spells no hope. Having no hope and without God in the world. That was our life. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one and has done what? Broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. Now, I don't know if you know what Paul has just said here, but what he has basically done is he has taken the whole history of the nation of Israel about their election, their selection, them being the, the top dog, and he has said in Christ Jesus something new has happened. He has taken the old, he has brought in the new, and he has made them one new man. I mean, and this is all in the person of Christ. Now, what do you do with this? Well, you read the next sentence. When he brought together the Jew and the Gentile, and by the way, let me, uh, let me say that within the Gentile is every race you can imagine. Okay? Black, white, Asian, go on down the list. Every race that you can imagine is included in Gentile. So what is God's answer for racial division? Here's the answer. Jesus. You know why? Because God takes both and makes them into one new man. So that He doesn't see us any different than He sees us in Christ. And you know what He tells us to do? He tells us to see each other that way too. We are to see each other in Christ. Not because of our color. Not because of our standing, our social, our economic, or whatever you want to call it. We are one in Him. And so what does He do? He brings peace. 
And you know what? That's what we need today is peace. I love the interview with Morgan Freeman. If you've never seen it, somebody showed it to me recently. A Jewish man interviewed Morgan Freeman and he said, well, what do you think about Black History Month? He said, I hate it. He said, do you want White History Month? And the man said, well, I'm a Jew. He said, okay, do you want Jew History Month? And he said, well, not really. He said, well, I don't like relegating my whole being down to one month. He said, because this is my life. And the guy said, well, then how do you stop all this racial tension? Morgan Freeman said, stop talking about it. Stop talking about it and it'll go away. And I thought to myself, that was perfect. He just needed to add one more thing. What Morgan Freeman needed to do is, first of all, he needs to be saved. And then second, he needs to say, because in the person of Jesus Christ, we are equal. We are equal. And you stop calling me a black man, I'll stop calling you a white man. And let's just say it this way, I'll call you a brother. And you call me your brother or your sister. And you know what? Then we will have all this division taken care of. Very simple answer. This is what Paul's saying. We are one in Christ. He brought peace and He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, taking away all this nonsense. And notice what he says. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The Jew is not one step closer than the Gentile. We both have the same access to God the Father through the same spirit. We are on equal footing. Now, by the way, if you're a Gentile this morning, your heart should be going, Oh, thank you, Father. You know what? I may not understand all of it, God, but I know that I'm equal. And you've opened the door for me, just like you did Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the rest of your people. I have equal access. This is what we have in Christ. Now notice what Paul tells them. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Let me stop here. Why would he use the phrase strangers and aliens? Well, if you know anything about the Jewish temple, you know that when you came into the courtyard, imagine our foyer would be marked off space for Gentiles. In the auditorium, we would have space for Jews. A Gentile was not allowed to come through our doors. Only a Jew could sit in here. The Gentiles would have to stand on the outside and listen through the glass. And that's how the temple was set up. And so what Paul is saying here is, when you come to God's temple now, no longer do you have to stand in the foyer because you are not a stranger and an alien, but now you're welcome to come in and sit as a fellow citizen with the saints and the members of the household of God because they are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, in Jesus, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I wish I could preach a whole sermon on that. Read that last verse carefully. In Jesus... 
you, Gentiles, are being built together with Jews into a dwelling place for God. You are the dwelling place. We are the dwelling place. And God indwells this new man. This is fascinating, folks. But what is the point? The point is this. God doesn't show favoritism when it comes to saving souls. Okay, the third truth that He wants these people to know is that God's people can accomplish great tasks if they will work together. You know, if I get over my, I don't like this about you, and you get over, you you don't like this about me, it's amazing what you and I can accomplish. And by the way, the older I get, the more I realize how petty, how petty we as people can become. Oh, he doesn't believe this, he doesn't like that, so I can't have coffee with him. No, they, they like, you know, they, they do this. They, they believe so, and, and I can't get along. You know, Paul just smashes this here, and he says, if you'll get along, it's amazing what you can do. Listen to what he wrote. I myself am satisfied about you, Romans, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. The body is healthy. You know right from wrong. You have goodness in your heart. You know how to meet each other's needs. And you're able to instruct one another. In other words, you don't have to just go to one person all the time when you have a problem. You can go to whoever in the body and y'all are able to help each other. This is what Paul's telling them. You're able to help each other and walk through life successfully together. It's amazing what can be accomplished through a group of people like us. You know, when you dissect the church, we are made up of all kinds of different ways. I mean, there are all kinds of expertise in this room. Some are mathematical people. Some are scientific people. Some are practical people. I mean, some people don't know how to put a positive terminal on a battery. Others in here know how to rebuild everything. Some people don't even know what a two-by-four is. Other people can build a massive structure. And all of us walk through life and we all have problems. But it's amazing when God can take a group of people like this, put them together, and help them to be able to solve each other's dilemmas and walk through life together. To know that we're not alone. We all struggle. We're all weak. We all have frailty. We all have ups. And we all have downs. But when we're there to pick each other up and lean in on each other, we can find great help in the local church. We think that's one of the strengths of Trinity is a group of caring people who want and are willing to help others. And that's what makes our church so loving and so powerful is because our people are willing to speak into each other's lives. Thank God for that. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This was Paul's message to every church. Be at peace. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. If you see a lazy one that's not working, go to them and tell them, get a job, be productive, because I'm going on Social Security for long. You need to help pay my Social Security. (laughs) Well, 
That's what the older people may want to say. But go to work because you need to work. Admonish the idle. What else does he say? Encourage the faint-hearted. You know, I would say this morning, if we had time to go around this room and started investigating someone's life and their face was a little downcast and we went up to them and said, how are you? They'd probably give us that normal Sunday morning. I'm fine. I'm fine. But really, if you got to talk to them, they would say, you know what? I'm down this week. Uh, This has happened in one of my children's lives or this happened at work or this happened to my health this week. And, and I'm really just kind of discouraged and I feel like maybe God left me. Why did God allow that to happen in my life? I mean, if God loves me, why would He allow that to happen? And somebody would say, oh, no, 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 wait a minute. Just because something happens in your life that you don't see as good, you know what? I'm sure God has a purpose for that and I don't know what it is and I'm not even going to try to answer it, but here's what I want you to know. I'm here to pray with you encourage you and walk with you through this. So you let me know how I can pray for you. And by the way, let's go for coffee tomorrow and we'll talk and we'll pray through this and ask God to give you wisdom. Encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. You know, there are some people who are just broken. And what does Paul say? Well, when somebody's crying and they're down on their luck, walk away from them because you don't want that to rub off on you. Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says. You are a group of caring, loving people and when you see someone else weep, go and be willing to weep with them. Enter into their sorrow. If they're rejoicing, enter into their joy. But in this particular instance, he tells them, you are to help The weak. And then finally, when you think you can't stand it anymore, be patient with them all. Because by the way, one thing we do need in life and in the church is a big dose of patience. Because we deal with people, don't we? We have to deal with ourselves. You know, when you think that someone else is impatient, always look in the mirror. Okay. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This was Paul's message in the church. The church can accomplish great things when they work together. Then finally, Paul has this powerful statement in uh, verses 15 and 16, and this is what he tells them. You know, Romans, I had to talk a little hard to you a couple of times, but I did it for God's glory and for your good. So here's the point, that straight talk When somebody has to tell you like it is, and you know, oftentimes we don't want to hear that. People oftentimes say, you know, always add a little spoonful of sugar with a dose of salt, makes it go down better. Sometimes Paul had to come out and just say it. Whenever straight talk is given, it should always be for God's glory and for our good. 
Do you like somebody to come to you and tell you, you were wrong in this? Or, you know, you were arrogant. Or, you were full of pride when you said that. No, I don't like that either. But is that sometimes what we need? Yes, it is. Notice what he says. On some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Where did he write to them boldly? Huh. Well, we've been going through the book. Do you remember? Who are you to judge another man's servant? Who are you? Are you God? you the fourth member of the Trinity? And they would say, well, no. He said, well, not stop judging. Don't you know that before his master, he's able to make him stand? Not before you. So stop your judging. I mean, he, he lays it on them. Y'all want some more? No, it's good enough. Okay. Some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Notice what he says here, in the priestly service of the gospel of God. What Paul was doing was an offering so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and set apart by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul said, I had to go in and tell you hard things because I didn't want your Christian life to be a waste. Whew. I remember a pastor one time telling me that somebody kept coming to them and coming to them, complaining, complaining. He said, I couldn't figure out what their problem was. He said, finally, it took me a few years to get to know them. He said, and here's what the problem was. They were in love with their money more than they were with God. So finally... The person came and complained and complained and he finally told him. He said, you know, after all these years, I prayed that God would give me wisdom about you and I figured it out. Well, what? You love your money more than you love God and His people. And boy, did the person get mad. Now, can you imagine somebody telling you that? Do you know why we get mad most of the time? Because somebody tells us the truth. And we'll sit there and go, oh, who is that person to Say something like that to me. And then perhaps we go and we say, y'all ever do this? Lord, if this is true, what this person said about me, show me. Because I want to know how you see me and not how I see myself. By the way, I heard an interesting podcast a while back and this was the thesis of that podcast. Every person has a blind spot. You know what a blind spot is in your car? It's, it's a place on your car that you can't see. And they say, once you see that place on the passenger side near the rear wheel tire, you can put a little mirror there or something and you can kind of get a better glimpse at it. But they said this, but a blind spot is something in your life unlike a car because you can't see it. And this is why God brings certain people into our life to speak truth into our life so that we can see the blind spot. Oftentimes, if we're married, this is our spouse. Sometimes we're very stubborn and we don't want to listen. But nevertheless, if we will, they'll show us our blind spot, hopefully very graciously. But nevertheless, there is a blind spot. Some of us, perhaps we don't have a relationship with our spouse that they can tell us our blind spot. And maybe it's a best friend. 
And when this best friend begins to talk to us, you know, we're like, I want you to tell me the truth on something here. What do you think about me? And they're like, oh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, let me think about that for a little. When somebody says that, they're thinking, you know what, I don't know if I can tell them because they might get mad at me. And then you lay the door out and say, listen, I will not be aggravated at you. Tell me, is this true? What is, and then they, they tell a straight talk. And we take that and we process that. Lord, is this true in my life? And by the way, you know, when, when people share truth like that, Paul, or, I'm sorry, the writer of the Proverbs says, this is like uh, an apple of gold. When somebody shares a word with you like that, you know, to tell you the truth about yourself, instead of getting mad at them, you should thank God for them. Now, if they do it all the time, you know, you'll probably distance them. But whenever that is spoken in truth, it's very needed. And this is what Paul tells this church. I told you some points that were very straight, but I did it for your good and for God's glory because I did not want your Christian life to be a waste at the judgment seat of Jesus. Now, may God bring faithful friends into your life and my life to tell me these hard things because it'll be worth it. Point number five, truth number five, and this is a good one. I found it interesting that Zach said this this morning because this was my fifth point. If anything gets accomplished, it is by God's hand and by His grace. If anything gets accomplished, worthwhile, it's by God's hand and God's grace. Listen to how Paul explains all of his missionary travel. He says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. In other words, all this desire and all this that you think I'm a great man, I'm not. In other words... Go back and read in the book of Acts what I was doing before I met Jesus. What was Paul doing, by the way? Well, he was a very zealous Pharisee who was going around to Christian churches and walking in on Sunday morning and knocking them in the head. Women, children, the whole family, tying them up and dragging them all the way to the Jewish synagogue to be killed. And one day, while he was on his way to visit the first church of Damascus, to drag out somebody from the congregation, Jesus met him on the road and blinded him with his Shekinah glory and said, why are you persecuting me? And he blinded Paul for three days and sent Paul to an upper room where a man had to come to him and say to him, do you know what you're doing, buddy? He says, well, I just met Jesus. He said, well, let me tell you something. This Jesus is going to give you your eyesight back and He's going to show you what great things you must suffer for His name's sake. He let, God, he let Paul sit in blindness for three days. And then you know what He did to him? He sent him around to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And every time Paul went and preached to the Gentiles, the Jews tried to kill him. His own people. And so Paul says, I'm not going to venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring Gentiles to obedience through word and deed by the power of signs and wonders. 
Who worked the signs and the wonders? God did. Please don't ever think an apostle was the one who worked the sign and the wonder. God did it through them. By the power of the Spirit of God. He tells you how it was accomplished. Not through the hands of Paul. It was accomplished by the power of the Spirit of God through Paul. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. In other words, Paul said, the reason I did not come to you Romans initially is because I was busy preaching about Jesus where nobody else had been. People in your congregation spread on social media and Twitter that I didn't like you, that I was a stuck-up, arrogant something or another, and I wouldn't come to you. That's not true. Paul said, the reason I didn't come to you is because God gave me a mission to go where nobody else has gone. And from the day of Pentecost, you have heard the gospel and it's being spread through you. I went where nobody else had went. And that's why I didn't come. Point number six. Get a hold of this one because this was my first sermon. I turned it into one point. We should all, and by the way, we do, people in ministry do, and hopefully you do too, we should all have plans hopes, dreams, whatever you want to say, we should all have this desire that we want to see God do something with our life. But, you better realize they don't always unfold like you expect. I want to marry this person and my life's going to be happy the rest of my life. Uh-oh. I'm going to get this job and I'm going to find full satisfaction in this because this is the career I always wanted. And you get hired and you get placed into a group of people and you get this certain supervisor over you and you're like, I'd rather be bagging groceries at Walmart. This is terrible. Or you live to this retirement day and you think if I can just make it to retirement... I'll be so happy and you make it to retirement and you start feeling bad and you go to the doctor the next day and you have a lump come up on your neck and all of a sudden you have cancer. This happened, by the way, to one of my neighbors this past week. His funeral was yesterday. Wonderful man. Christian. Loved Jesus. Died at 60. Six, right after he had retired at 65 of an autoimmune disorder. Wonderful man. Let me ask you a question. Did he have a dream? Yes, he did. Did God have a plan? Yes, he did. Well, what was God's plan, first of all? God's plan was to turn Richard into the image of Jesus. Richard's plan was to live to be 99 years old and the rapture happen and him not have to die and have perfect health and still be able to run three miles a day. That didn't happen. God's plan was to let Richard get to be 66 years old and take him home and turn him into the image of Jesus. 
Now, I'm sure nobody else liked God's plan for Richard. But that was God's plan. Do you know what Paul told the church in Rome? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take an offering from the church in Corinth and I'm going to take it down to Jerusalem and I'm going to then leave from Jerusalem and I'm going to go to Spain because nobody's ever been there. I've finished everything here. And I'm going to stop through Rome on my way and then after I'm refreshed by you, I'm going on to Spain. Listen to his words. Here's the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. I've been going to the other Gentiles. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for, the, for Macedonia and Achaia. Think 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, so forth. Those places have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought to be of service to them in material blessing. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Now I want you to know something. Paul went to Rome. But if you read Acts chapter 28, it wasn't the way he thought. Because he didn't arrive there in great freedom. He arrived there in great chains. He went to Jerusalem. He presented all that nice offering to the Jews and some of them were so happy and then Paul began to share the gospel and how God was working among the Gentiles and the Jews stopped up their ears and they tried to kill him. Do you realize that if it wasn't for Paul's nephew by the providence of God that he would have been delivered in a motorcade right into a trap and they would have killed Paul on the way? But Paul's nephew went and told someone and they made another escape plan for Paul and he was taken and he appealed to the Romans and he was taken and put on a ship and he was taken to the island of Crete. He was bit by a copper, a, a poisonous snake. He was attacked. They had a shipwreck and he was at sea watching people being thrown overboard and all kinds of problems. And Paul was just trying to get to Rome. And I'm sure he prayed many times, Oh God, I'm not going to make it. By the way, while he was on that ship up and down and the south wind blew and they knew a tempest was coming and Paul told the ship captain, You're an idiot if you sail. And the guy went, Who are you, a dumb Jew? And took off. And while they're rocking and the mast breaks, Paul went to him and said, I told you you should have listened to me. And the man says, start throwing everything and everybody overboard. Jesus appeared to Paul and said, the ship's going to make it and not one person's going to be hurt. So Paul went to the shipmaster and said, stop doing all this. No lives will be lost. My Lord appeared to me tonight. And guess what, folks? No lives were lost. And Paul was taken into Rome, bound with a chain. And while he was put there on house arrest, guess what he did? He wrote... Ephesians. Wonderful book. I just read from it. He wrote Galatians. 
He wrote Colossians and he wrote Philemon. While he was bound with chains in Rome. But let me tell you something. His dreams didn't happen the way he thought. Did he ever make it to Spain? Well, scholars are divided on this. This might be a whole other message. There's some evidence that he did, some that he didn't. But here's what ended up happening eventually. He was beheaded right here in Rome. That is where he went to glory. It's good to have dreams, but be sober with them because they don't always turn out like you think they will. And then the seventh truth, and you ought to mark this one down because this should be a whole sermon in itself too. Prayer is more powerful than we think. As a matter of fact, the most powerful thing you can do as a Christian, are you ready for this? Is pray. It's not listen to a sermon, not even memorize a verse, it's pray. And I'm going to prove that to you here in just a moment. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus. By the way, this is the same word he used back in chapter 12, the verse that we all memorize. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice. He uses the same word here. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, pray for me. I'm begging you to pray for me. Notice what he says. To strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Number one, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Well, God answered the prayer, but not the way Paul thought. And second, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. They answered that prayer because the poor Jewish believers there were so thankful that the Gentiles thought enough about them to give them money and to help them. Both of those prayers were answered, just not in the way that Paul thought. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Now I want to point this out to you if you have your Bible open, because here's another good one. Paul mentions here many issues and things about God. Notice what he says about him. 15.5 May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with each other. The God of endurance. He doesn't quit. The God of encouragement. The one who is able to bring joy to you. Verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Verse 33, May the God of peace be with you all. Verse 25 of chapter 16, Now to Him who is able to strengthen you. This is our God. A God of endurance, encouragement, hope, peace, and strength. Paul says, may this God be active in your life. And may you know that through your prayer you have access to the most powerful, most life-transforming, the only wise God ever. Use it, Paul says, for me and use it for yourself. Prayer is powerful. I read a story this week about a missionary named David Livingston. 
David Livingston was a young boy, and the best I could tell by going back through some writings, he was working on an organ in a church at about eight, nine years old. Correct me if I'm wrong, those of you who know it better than me. But he was back there pumping air into the organ, getting ready for Sunday morning service. And while he was pumping, the man was preaching, and he said one phrase out of a verse of Scripture, and Livingston heard it. He was converted, and he felt the call in the ministry from a man saying a phrase. Livingston became a medical doctor and decided he wanted to travel to Africa. And while he was there, he wasn't going to be like the rest of the medical doctors because he realized there was no geography of Africa. He was the first white man to travel from east to west, and he went and discovered the Victoria Falls and traveled over 29,000 miles and mapped one million square miles of previously uncharted territory. While Livingston was there, he first began his ministry among native tribes, and one particular warlike tribe said that the next time he comes into their territory, they would kill him and everybody with him. One afternoon as they were setting up camp, word was out that these warriors had been tracking him all day, and they were outside the camp, and they were going to attack and kill everyone when it got dark. This man wrote, I have the words of David Livingston that he wrote in his journal on the night of January the 14th, 1856. Livingston writes, It is evening. I feel much turmoil and fear in the prospect of having all my plans knocked out by the head savages who were just outside the camp. Those who studied, by the way, Livingston's writing noticed that there was a certain slant in his letters that indicated he was fearful. He continued to write, But Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Livingston wrote, This is the word of a gentleman, a gentleman of most strict and sacred honor, so that that's the end of my fear. I feel quiet and calm now. Even in his letters, one man wrote, they began to straighten and the fear left after he wrote this text. The warriors did not attack that night and later the tribe was brought to faith in Christ. A couple of years later, David Livingston met with the chief and asked him, do you remember the night that you were tracking my party? Oh yes, the chief said. We had heard rumors that you were going to attack us. The chief said, that's right. We were going to attack the camp that night and kill you and everyone else with you. Livingston asked, Then why didn't you attack? The chief said, When we got close to your camp, we looked and saw 47 warriors surrounding your camp with swords in their hands. Livingston was baffled. We didn't have any guards. There were no warriors with us. Later, when he was on furlough in Scotland, he shared this story at a church that was supporting him. A man came up to him afterward with his prayer journal, opened it up and said, Look, look at what I wrote down on January the 14th, 1856. Was that at night? Livingston responded, Yes. The man said, That very night, a group of men came out to pray for you. We prayed for your protection. I wrote it down. 
there were 47 men praying for you that night. You hear me, church. If anything's going to get accomplished, it's going to be because we're on our knees praying to God. If anybody's heart's going to be changed, it's going to be because we're praying and asking God for it to happen. If this city, this town is going to be transformed, it's going to be because we're praying and asking God to do it. We can't. He can. Are we willing to be warriors in prayer? I hope. Father, in Jesus' name this morning, we thank You. Thank You that You have accepted us in Jesus Christ that we have equal footing one with another because of Jesus and what He's done for us. We give You praise for the person of Christ this morning, the fact that He in His flesh made it possible for us to have a relationship with You and to be granted the wonderful gift of eternal life. Thank You, Father, for Jesus and eternal everlasting life by believing in Him and what He has done for us. Thank You for that free gift. And I pray this morning, Father, as we hear Your heart to this church, that we will think through different truths that You communicated to this Roman church, which are, which are still true for us today, that we will be a church of unity, a church that shows no favoritism, a church that works together, that tells the truth and realizes that it's your hand and your power that accomplishes anything. And that our dreams are just that. They're our dreams. And they don't always come like we want, but they will always end as you want. And then, Father, oh, please, I pray, help us to remember, if anything ever gets accomplished, it'll be because of you answering our prayers and carrying out your will here on this earth. We thank you. We give you glory. We give you praise. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.